It's the Pete Callender Show. With more than 20 years as a reporter and radio host in North Carolina, Pete Callender is helping solve the world's problems one podcast at a time. Because he's a giver. And now, here's Pete. What is going on? Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate it. Also want to give a shout out to the patrons who help make the show possible. Folks like Meredith, Dennis, and Rebecca and Taylor. Keith, Yuri, LL, David, Patty, Trudy, and Ron, and Gene and Ben, thank you very much for all of the support. I could not do the program without you. Uh, the uh, closing arguments occurred yesterday up in Minneapolis in the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin, who is charged with killing George Floyd about a year ago. And I've got uh, a bunch of audio here. Uh, first off, I'm going to play you a big chunk from the uh, from the prosecution, their closing arguments, and then a chunk from the uh, defense uh, attorney. So starting off here, this is Steve Schleicher, I want to say. He's the prosecutor uh, who told jurors that Chauvin's restraint of Floyd during the May 25th, 2020 arrest was excessive. He says it was not policing. He says it was murder. Well, this all started over a call of an alleged counterfeit $20 bill. But George Floyd's life was taken for something worth far, far less. Far less. You saw the photo. You saw the body language. You can learn a lot about someone by looking at their body language. The defendant facing down that crowd. They were pointing cameras at him recording him, telling him what to do, challenging his authority, his ego, his pride. Not the kind of pride that makes you do better, be better. The kind of ego-based pride. But the defendant was not going to be told what to do. He was not going to let these bystanders tell him what to do. He was going to do what he wanted, how he wanted, for as long as he wanted. And there was nothing nothing they could do about it because he had the authority he had the power of the badge and the other officers and the bystanders were powerless they were powerless to do a thing the defendant he chose pride over policing charles mcmillan 61 years old interesting man right you remember when he testified he had the glasses if any of you in the front row, when he walked by, happened to notice his shoes, if you looked at his shoes, you probably saw your reflection in those shoes, right? Uh, he dressed uh, for court like it was the most important day of his life. Uh, interesting man. Uh, he was there. He's sort of narrating this horrific scene throughout. You hear him in the video. And he called out to George Floyd. He said, um, you can't win. You can't win. And George Floyd replied, I'm not trying to win. I'm not trying to win. I'm scared. But the defendant, the defendant was trying to win. He wasn't going to be told what to do. He wasn't going to take a challenge to his authority. He was trying to win. And George Floyd paid for it with his life. Now, also need to be clear, this is not the trial of George Floyd. George Floyd is not on trial here. You've heard some things about George Floyd, uh, that he struggled with drug addiction, 
that uh, he was being investigated for allegedly passing a fake $20 bill, that there was never any evidence introduced that he knew was fake in the first place. Right? But, but he is not on trial. He didn't get a trial when he was alive. And he is not on trial here. Uh, defense claims that he was non-compliant. Non-compliant. Well, let's, let's revisit what happened before the 9 minutes and 29 seconds. Before that. It's Memorial Day, right? May 25, 2020. And George Floyd is sitting in a car in the driver's seat with two friends. Now, previously he'd been in Cup Foods. He'd been in the store. He was walking. He was talking. He was breathing as alive as any person, any human in this room. Back to the car. He's with his friends, and there's a tap at the window. He looks to his left and a start. This is what he sees. This is what he sees. Within seconds of the approach, Officer Lane have tapped on the window. Within seconds, he pulls his gun and holds it inches from George Floyd's face and starts shouting profanities, show me your thing hands, show me your effing hands, screaming at it. This is within seconds. You can tell a lot about someone by looking at their body language. How does Mr. Floyd look in this photo. Terrified? An officer on the driver's side, an officer on the passenger side. Lane orders Floyd to put his hands on the steering wheel. He does. That's not resistance. That's compliance. Lane orders Floyd to get out of the car. He does. That's not resistance. That's compliance. They order him. They want him handcuffed. He is handcuffed. That's not resistance. That's compliance. And on the handcuffs, you recall the testimony, they weren't properly double locked. And so they continue to ratchet. They're not on correctly. They're on too tight. Throughout, and if you listen to the videos, throughout the videos, you can hear the sound of those handcuffs ratcheting tighter and tighter. Mr. Floyd is trying to explain to the police that his wrists hurt, impervious to pain please. His wrists hurt. No one listens to him. But it continues. They tell him to go over to the dragon walk. He goes over to the dragon walk. That's not resistance. That's compliance. They ask him to sit down. He sits down. Not resistance. Compliance. Not trying to escape. Not trying to evade arrest. Not trying to assault anybody, shoot anybody, stab anybody, punch anybody. No. Compliance sits down on the ground. They ask him his name. He gives his name. He spells it. That's not resistance. That's compliance. They ask him to get up. He gets up. They ask him to go across the street. He goes across the street. Right? Where's the resistance? Where's that? They take him over to the car. Okay? They take him over to the car. George Floyd is a big guy. Right? You can see here, I mean, he's almost as big as Officer Lane. 
He's a big guy. He's a big person. The back of the squad car is not. Right? That's what they wanted him to get into. And to George Floyd, that looked, he looked at that. What do you think that looked like? Like a little cage. Right? He tried to explain himself to the officers that he had anxiety, that he had claustrophobia. He explained this over and over. They wanted him to get in the back of this little car. And, you know, he just wasn't able to bring himself to do it. He wasn't able to bring himself to do it. Man, I'm so he's trying to work up the ability to get in the car he's explaining himself repeatedly and you can see this is where the defendant and officer Tao start coming into the scene right and we'll, we'll look at what they saw in a minute but they start to come to the scene right 19 year veteran of the police force with all of the training that that involves over 800 hours of training 40 hour crisis intervention training course a scenario based training where they're taught to recognize the signs of someone who is experiencing a crisis a crisis you know he couldn't bring himself to get in and sometimes people can't bring themselves to get in and this is not new. This is not groundbreaking. Okay. People have emotions. People have things happen to them. Uh, the police train for this. They recognize this. You, you don't get to meet the police on your best day very often. You don't call the police and say, everything's fine. Just wanted you to know, right? That doesn't happen. Okay. No, there's a whole range of humanity out there who have a whole range of different issues. I mean, it could be anything. It could be a death in the family. Right? That can cause an extreme emotional response. You know, recall when Officer Lane approached the car, George Floyd talked about losing his mother. He'd lost her in 2018. Those, those wounds still right there on the surface. Emotion. It could involve... Uh, a divorce, finding bad financial news, right? mental illness, mental health issues, like drug and alcohol abuse. All of those things can cause someone to not resist, but just not be able to bring themselves to comply at that moment, at that time. And this is nothing new. They train for it, they plan for it, they prepare for it, they have a policy on it, right? Recognizing persons in crisis. You remember Chief Arredondo took the stand, he testified, he testified that they have 4,000 calls for service for persons in crisis every single year. This is nothing new. They're there on a $20 counterfeiting charge. They train for this. They know about this. Now, George Floyd certainly had his struggles, you know that. The state put in evidence of that. Right? Courtney Ross testified that he struggled with an opioid addiction. You knew that. And this is nothing new. The, the difference, though, on May 25, 2020, the officers just wouldn't listen to him. 
wouldn't look at the signs, wouldn't recognize the signs of what they had prepared for. And a reasonable officer in the defendant's place with all his training and all his experience including that 40-hour crisis intervention course and a subsequent refresher course, should have known that and should have recognized it. Floyd was trying to get into the car. He was trying to work up the courage. He said he'd count to three, but he just couldn't do it. Up next, we're going to hear from the defense attorney portion of his closing arguments. Uh, But first, I want to tell you about Growers Hemp. These are North Carolina farmers uh, that got together and said, why don't we control the process of creating the CBD products rather than relying on some, you know, California-based company that parachutes in here and takes all the crops and uh, turns it into product and overcharges people. Why don't we do a better job for customers? And by controlling the whole process, Growers uh, Growers Hemp now can give you better quality, lower pricing, and you get to help save North Carolina family farms. Growers Hemp Full Spectrum Hemp Extract. Uh, I take some of the drops before I go to bed. They've got topicals as well. They've got lozenges. They've got tons of different products. Go to the website, growershemp.com. Use my name, Pete. You'll get 20% off. And as with all CBD products, here's the official disclaimer that I got to give you. GovCo requires it. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of these products has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Nothing I've said is meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from your healthcare provider. So consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. Again, go to growershemp.com, promo code PETE, get 20% off from North Carolina farmers to your home. Growers Hemp is about the hemp and not the hype. All right, so now we've got Eric Nelson. He is the attorney for police officer, former officer Derek Chauvin. Uh, He told jurors that this case is about more than just the nine minutes and 29 seconds that Chauvin placed his knee on Floyd's neck. The state has brought in expert after expert after expert to testify that the singular cause of death, the singular cause of death here is asphyxiation because If Mr. Floyd was asphyxiated as a result of the police restraint, he is liable for the natural consequences of that restraint, of his actions. But if any of these other factors come into it, if any of these other factors were substantial contributing factors of Mr. Floyd's death, because they were not the natural result of the restraint, a person has drugs in their system and that drug causes an overdose in the context of the police restraint, it's not the natural consequence of the restraint, it's the natural consequence of the deceased's actions. So the state has called six experts, really five, but I'll include Dr. Baker. The the state first called Dr. Tobin, a pulmonologist. Dr. Tobin said that you need to apply common sense to the evaluation of the medical testimony. He testified that Mr. Floyd died exclusively from positional asphyxia, coronary artery disease, hypertension, controlled substances. They played absolutely no role in the death, according to Dr. Tobin. state called Dr. Eisenschmidt a toxicologist, to explain to you that Mr. Floyd's toxicological levels were somehow more consistent with a DWI case than a whole bunch of other cases that may or may not have involved 
an overdose, right? Remember the ratio where you said, well, no, these are cases, they may have died of something else. They may have died of a gunshot wound, but they had fentanyl in their system. So he gave you these strange statistics, but essentially attempting to try to convince you that, that these levels are insignificant. People drive their cars around, right? And that therefore the drugs played no role in the death of Mr. Floyd. Third, the state called Dr. Smock, an emergency room physician, right? To explain to you that Mr. Floyd was not experiencing any symptoms of excited delirium. And that coronary artery disease, hypertension, controlled substances, none of that comes into play. He called Dr. Thomas, a pathologist, to testify how she interpreted what Dr. Baker meant. How she concluded that Dr. Baker simply said that the cardiopulmonary arrest is the basic way everybody dies. And she interpreted the reason why Dr. Baker put those factors on his autopsy or on the death certificate were merely for statistical purposes. You put stuff, we just, the CDC requires us to put that stuff on there. And it was an asphyxial death, controlled substances played no role, hypertension played no role, coronary artery disease played no role. They did call Dr. Baker. We'll talk about Dr. Baker in a minute. And finally, the state called Dr. Rich, a cardiologist who concluded that despite a 90% narrowing of the right coronary artery and a 75% narrowing in the left anterior descending artery, despite an enlarged heart and a history of hypertension, that Floyd, Mr. Floyd had a strong heart and that none of those pre-existing and coexisting conditions in any way contributed to the death of Mr. Floyd. I submit to you that the testimonies of Dr. Tobin, Eisenschmidt, Schmack, Thomas, and Rich, it flies in the absolute face of reason and common sense. It, it's, it's astounding, especially when you consider the actual findings of Dr. Baker, right? Because Dr. Baker is the only person who actually performed the autopsy in this case. He's the only person who performed the actual autopsy. He told you that he specifically avoided watching the video because he didn't want to bias or influence his uh, autopsy. He specifically testified that there was no evidence of asphyxia. There were no evidence of petechial hemorrhaging. There was no bruising to the neck or back above the skin, under the skin, or into the subcutaneous muscles of the neck and back. And he would expect to see those things in a case like this. There was no finding that pressure was applied to the point to, of Mr. Back to cause these injuries. There were no injuries to the structures of his neck and that when he finally did review the video, it didn't appear that the placement of the knee affected the structures of the neck because Mr. Floyd could lift up his head, turn his head, move it around. He saw no fractures to the structures of the neck, including the hyoid bone. There were no soft tissue injuries to the sides of Mr. Floyd's neck. There was no hemorrhaging or injury to the hypopharynx. 
No evidence of life-threatening injury to the neck or spinal column of Mr. Floyd. There was pulmonary edema, which is the swelling of the lungs, which could, could be caused by the resuscitative efforts or fentanyl. There's no evidence of hypoxic changes to the brain. There's no evidence of any brain injury consistent with an asphyxia death. He said his heart was enlarged. Mr. Floyd's heart was enlarged, right? Okay, so now you've got a, a good handle, I think, on what the major arguments were. I'm going to go into a little bit more depth. Also, uh, potential for a mistrial, thanks to Maxine Waters, that's coming up. Um, while it seems like everything is getting a little bit more expensive these days, or a lot more expensive these days, thank you, Joe Biden, Mattress Man is giving you more bed for your buck. Okay, so maybe the kids have outgrown their twin-size beds. You can get them a queen-size bed for the price of a twin. Or uh, maybe, you know, you got all the animals that sleep in the in the queen size bed with you and you're getting like pushed off the side of the bed. Well, how about getting a king for the price of a queen? OK, then you've got plenty of room for you and the pets. I'm calling it the free upgrade from Mattress Man, a king for the price of a queen and a queen for the price of a twin. Uh, they are the exclusive retailer of the Biltmore Collection made by Restonic right here in North Carolina. Get free local five-star delivery service, and a 120-day comfort guarantee. They do ship nationwide and uh, take advantage of all of the flexible financing options that they've got, like no interest for two years. Experience the difference at Mattress Man. Check out their inventory and the deals at mattressmanstores.com. Support the businesses that support this show. I appreciate that. Tell them you heard it here. Buy local and sleep better. So the jury heard from a total of 45 witnesses during this trial, 38 for the prosecution, only seven for the defense. And remember, the defense is just trying to cast a reasonable doubt in the minds of the jurors, and that's enough. They don't have to prove that he's innocent. They just have to uh, give jurors enough reasonable doubt to question whether there is a reasonable doubt that uh, he did it. And um, so seven witnesses that they brought, 38 for the prosecution, police training experts uh, criticized Chauvin for his use of force. Medical experts said Floyd died of asphyxiation. They testified for the prosecutors. Now, defense witnesses tried to convince jurors that there was more to Floyd's death than the several minutes that Chauvin's knee was on his neck, according to the UPI story. The defense has tried to shift blame from Chauvin's restraint tactics to Floyd's drug use and his underlying heart problems. Uh, also to the, you know, the hostile crowd that was growing more and more agitated at the scene. The defense also suggested that carbon monoxide poisoning from the exhaust of the car, of the squad car, could have been a factor in his death. But that was kind of like, well, it was kind of dismissed. It was like, oh, you know, he was put down there face first, you know, by the back bumper. And so, you know, could have died of, could have died of that. Well, okay, but the cops put him there too. So <laughs> that's not exactly, I didn't find that to be a compelling line of defense. Now, the attorney uh, for Chauvin, Eric Nelson, says they're not claiming that George Floyd overdosed, but it was the culmination of several factors, an enlarged heart, high blood pressure, methamphetamine in his system, and fentanyl in his system. The history of Mr. Floyd's use of controlled substances, it's, it is significant. It's, it's not a character problem. Millions of Americans suffer from opioid, the opioid crisis, right? I mean, it is, a, it is a true crisis that this country is facing. But it is significant to understand the history 
not just as much as the long-term history, but his long-term history provides us with insight on how his body physically reacts to methamphetamine or, or opioid use, I should say, opioid use within the context of a law enforcement encounter. We know from the testimony of Courtney Ross that Mr. Floyd struggled. We know he had been using controlled substances habitually for some time. We know that on May 6th of 2019, during an encounter with the police, Mr. Floyd ingested some controlled substances, said they were Percocets. He was startled by the police, like he was in this case. Officer drew his gun in that case, too. And that resulted in a blood pressure of 216 over 160. I mean, that's not just high. That is skyrocketing high. We know from Ms. Ross that in March of 2020, they purchased some pills that were supposed to be Percocets, an opioid. But they were clearly knockoffs. She described that. They were clearly knockoffs. She described how those pills made her feel. They kept her up all night, right? The introduction of the methamphetamine. We know from Ms. Ross that in March of 2020, Mr. Floyd was seen for a drug overdose. She described how he felt in that instance. She said his whole body hurt, his stomach hurt. We know, based on again from Ms. Ross, that he was clean and sober for some time while they were in quarantine. We know that Ms. Ross again described taking about a week before a similar pill to the one that they had back in March. Kept her up again all night, right? She said she felt like she was going to die. Okay, so th these are all previous uh, events, you know, to the, uh, the incident that, you know, led to George Floyd's death. So they're showing this pattern and suggesting that, hey, look, he could have gotten some bad drugs because he has before uh, with this very woman who was, you know, one of the people in the car when police first approached them. Uh, the attorney says that it's preposterous that the medical experts for the prosecutors um, refuse to name a single other factor that could have contributed or caused George Floyd's death. Forensic pathologists define coronary artery disease resulting in death, it can, death can occur with 70 to 75% blockage. That is sufficient to cause the, a person's death. Every pathologist who testified in this case has indicated likewise that they have certified deaths with those types of blockage and attributed it to the coronary artery disease. Okay, so this is the, he had, uh, he had uh, an enlarged heart, he had, you know, blocked arteries, like 90% in one and 70-something percent in another. But here again, this has played zero role. Dr. Rich testified Mr. Floyd had a healthy heart. Coronary heart disease, not relevant, according to the state. Hypertensive disease, not relevant. Drugs acting to further constrict an already heart, diseased heart, not relevant. Adrenaline coursing through Mr. Floyd's body, not relevant. What does adrenaline do? It further constricts the arteries, right? Adrenaline from the paraganglioma wasn't there, didn't happen, played no, no role. They just want you to ignore 
significant medical issues that presented to Mr. Floyd. And the failure of the state's experts to acknowledge any possibility, any possibility at all, that any of these other factors in any way contributed to Mr. Floyd's death defies medical science and it defies common sense and reason. All right, we're going to get a couple more sound bites from the prosecutors because they got to close. They, you know, so the prosecution makes its closing arguments, the defense makes its closing arguments, and then prosecutors get a rebuttal. That's usually the case. So we're going to hear a couple of sound bites from them. First, Old Grouch's military surplus in downtown Clyde. Uh, make your emergency kit now, okay? You better be ready <laughs> for, you know, just some reasons. Just it's always good to be prepared, okay? Look, even government says you should have a two-week, uh, you know, supply of, or yeah, two, two weeks of supplies, emergency supplies uh, for natural disasters and man-made ones. But, you know, natural disasters, hurricanes and that sort of thing. Have your go bag ready. They've got backpacks, they've got ammo cans, um, and they're always getting new stuff in. By the way, if you're interested in selling some stuff, take it down to uh, Old Grouch's in downtown Clyde. Real U.S. military surplus for more than three decades on Main Street. The shop is open Monday through Saturday. It's across the street from the anti-aircraft gun and at oldgrouch.com. So while the defense attorney said that Officer Chauvin's actions were reasonable... And that they were what any reasonable officer would have done. The prosecutor, Steve Schleicher, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, said, no, they weren't. Okay. And that Officer Chauvin displayed indifference to George Floyd's suffering. And then he played a portion of the video where Chauvin refused to turn Floyd onto his side. Roll him on his side, staying put where we got him. That's what the defendant said. He's staying put where we got him. Roll him on his side means roll him into the side recovery position. He could have listened to the bystanders. He could have listened to fellow officers. He could have listened to his own training. He knew better. He just didn't do better. He knew that kneeling on somebody's neck, in addition to the positional asphyxia, just the pressure, is dangerous. Anyone can tell you that. A nine-year-old can tell you that, did tell you that. Conscious indifference? Indifference? Do you want to know what indifference is and sounds like? Hey, don't talk to him. Why are you yelling? Hey, don't kill me. Hey, don't kill me, man. Takes a heck of a lot of oxygen, though. Come on, man. Indifference. Leisurely picking rocks out of the tire. Commenting about the smell of the man's feet, who you're pressing down, grinding on, as his voice slows and fades as he tells you, going to kill me. I can't breathe. My stomach hurts. Uh-huh. My neck hurts. Uh-huh. Everything hurts. That takes a lot of oxygen to complain about it. Indifference. Schleicher's argument is that uh, Chauvin's treatment, his restraint of George Floyd was excessive and unlawful. George Floyd is handcuffed and on the ground 
right? What is he saying? He's saying, I can't breathe 27 times within the first four minutes and 45 seconds of this encounter. He's saying that. And the defendant continues to kneel on his back and neck, continue the dangerous restraint. George Floyd says, into the restraint at 822.24, my stomach hurts, my neck hurts, anything, everything hurts. Defendant heard that, he heard those words. Was George Floyd resisting when he was trying to breathe? No, no. And the defendant heard it and he acknowledged it and all he did was mock him. Uh-huh, it takes a lot of oxygen to complain. That's what he said. It takes a lot of oxygen to say that. When George Floyd gave his final words to the defendant, please, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Crying out for help by the man in, for the man in uniform. <laughs> the defendant stayed right on top of him, ignored it. Continued doing what he was doing, facing the crowd, grinding his knee, twisting his hand. I think he's passing out, Officer Lane says. Officer King can't find a pulse. Now, the greatest skeptic of this case among you, how can you justify the continued force on this man when he has no pulse? No pulse. Continued. The restraint continued grinding and twisting and pushing him down and crushing the very life out of him. It wasn't too late. He could have rolled him over, performed CPR. No, he continued past the point finding a pulse, past the point where the ambulance arrives, past the point where the EMTs get out of the ambulance. What's the goal? What's the plan here? What are we trying to accomplish? This was a counterfeit $20 bill, allegedly. What is going on? Why? Why hold him that long, past that point, past that line that was crossed? Oh, unreasonable force. Unreasonable. Not proportional. Excessive. It violated policy. It violated the law. It violated everything that the Minneapolis Police Department stood for. Two points here to note. Uh, number one, that the defense attorney, Eric Nelson, uh, told jurors that it is not uncommon for suspects to fake a medical emergency in order to avoid arrest. And this is true. And uh, I do wonder uh, if sort of this, this, I don't know, this common thing that people do when they encounter law enforcement to, you know, basically perform like a soccer player trying to draw a red card uh, in order to get taken to the hospital rather than jail. And this sort of heightened performance uh, has desensitized cops to these performances, to whether or not somebody is actually in pain or not, because they don't know. Everybody always says, I can't breathe, I can't breathe when they're getting restrained like that. And you know, I don't know if the majority of them can or cannot, because a lot of them say they, they say that they cannot when they can. And they do so in order to get the police to stop doing the thing that is uncomfortable for them. 
and I understand why, right? <laughs> You're uncomfortable. You don't want somebody uh, on, uh, you know, with their knee on your back and your neck pushing you into the ground. Now, the problem I have with the restraint is that he was already down. You had him under control. Why would you keep him on his stomach like that? That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, now, the attorney uh, for Chauvin also suggested that uh, the use of force and his failure to perform CPR are mitigated by the distracting presence of bystanders who were criticizing him, yelling at him and you know about the way he was treating George Floyd. Now, to the contrary, the prosecutor argued that those objections should have alerted Chauvin to the danger of potential asphyxia, right, l- l- loss of oxygen, especially when combined with Officer Chauvin's training and uh, one of the other officers' suggestion that Floyd should be rolled off of his stomach. So another cop says, are hey, you going to put him on his side? And he says, no, he's fine where he is. We're going to leave him where he is. So that was, I mean, that was a conscious decision to leave him face down, pushing you know, on the ground. And as Floyd is calling out for help and saying he's in pain, uh, he's ignored. He is ignored. Now, again, is that due to desensitization or the prosecution's word for it would be indifference, right? Do not be indifferent when it comes to picking a real estate agent. It can make the difference between tens of thousands of dollars and, you know, total headaches when it comes to selling or buying a home when you have a realtor who's not prepared uh, like Rowena Patton and her all-star powerhouse team are. Okay, they will get your house sold fast and for more money. If you're looking to buy, she's got homes in all price points. So give her a call at 828-333-4483. That's 333-4483. Her website is mountainhomehunt.com. She's the only agent I called to buy our house, and she outsells 99% of the realtors in the entire state of North Carolina. So if you're thinking of selling, uh, springtime is here, and you want to get that house listed, and uh, she knows, because she used to be in marketing, she knows how to create sort of the buzz, which helps create bidding wars for your home, which obviously gets you more money. And it gets the house sold fast. Give her a call, 333-4483, and then start packing. So after they finished with their closing arguments, the jury gets its instructions from the judge, you know, what they're supposed to consider and all of that, how they're supposed to do their, uh, their deliberations. And then uh, they get sent back to the jury deliberation room to begin talking about it. And then the defense attorney, Eric Nelson, asked for a mistrial to be declared based on prosecutorial misconduct because prosecutors characterized defense arguments with terms like shading the truth and using fabricated facts. So multiple objections. This is essentially uh, governed by... uh, State versus McDaniel. In the final argument to the jury, a prosecutor is governed by a unique set of rules which differ significantly from those governing counsel in civil suits and even those governing defense counsel in the very same criminal trial. These special rules follow directly from the prosecutor's inherently unique role in the criminal justice system justice system, which mandates that the prosecutor not act as a zealous advocate for criminal punishment, but as the representative of the people in an effort to, to uh, seek justice. For example, that when a prosecutor argues that a defense is meritless, she cannot belittle the defense either in the abstract or suggesting that the defense was raised because it was the only defense that succeeded. So there's lots of law in this, Your Honor, um, and essentially these comments, the repeated uh, comments, um, constitute prosecutorial misconduct. 
I'll note for the record that I overruled the first objection when Mr. Blackwell used the word story because it was isolated and in its context it did not seem to me to be belittling. However, the continued use of it, I did sustain the ultimate objection that counsel made to the use of the word stories and instructed the jury to disregard it. Also on shading the truth uh, that I sustained the objection and instructed the jury to disregard it. I'm not making any findings as to whether it was the type of prosecutorial misconduct that would result in a mistrial. I think it was adequately addressed by the court's instruction to disregard. All right. So he's like, now get out of here. You're, uh, he's not going to declare a mistrial over that. Then the defense attorney references comments made by U.S. Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who flew into Minnesota to engage in the protesting in another nearby city over another police shooting. But here's what Maxine Waters said to the people, to the media that had gathered around her on the street the other night. At best, I could not be uh, satisfied without coming here uh, to let the family know and the friends know and the people of this community know and all those who have organized for justice know that I stand with you and I'm going to stand not only with you but continue to fight in every way that I can for justice. For justice. What's your opinion of the police reform efforts that are being discussed right here? And do you think that any of them have any hope of being enacted through maybe this Congress? Well, I am not happy that we have talked about police reform for so long. And it's not only this piece of legislation, but it's been years. I confronted the police chief, Dale Gates, in Los Angeles years ago about the killing of uh, Eula Love and about the chokehold and about all of that. We've been fighting for so many years for reform, reform, reform. And so, yes, I would like to see the bill in Congress pass on police reform, but I know that the right wing, the racist, are opposed to it, and I don't know what's going to happen to it, but I know this, we've got to stay in the street, and we've got to, we've got to demand justice. As a black man, despite all of the efforts, I feel like nothing changes, and George Floyd is waking so many people up. Yet nothing has happened, just you know, despite the rhetoric. Like, what what needs to happen that's different this year well, than all the years we're before? We're looking for a guilty verdict. We're looking for a guilty verdict, mm-hmm. and we're looking to see if all of the talk that took place and has been taking place after they saw what happened to George Floyd, if nothing does not happen, then we know uh, that we've got to not only stay in the street, but we've got to fight for justice. But I am very hopeful, and I hope uh, that we're going to get a verdict that they say guilty, guilty, guilty. And if we don't, we got, we cannot go away. And not just manslaughter, right? I mean... Oh, no, not manslaughter. No, no, no. This is, this is guilty for murder. I don't know whether it's in the first degree, but as far as I'm concerned, it's first degree it's what happens if we do not get, get what you just told? What should the people do? What should protesters on the street do? I didn't hear you. What happens? What should protesters do? Well, we, we got to stay on the street. Uh, and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. Mm. We've got to make sure that they, they know that we need business. So that's the soundbite that has been uh, heard around the world now and even into the courtroom. And this prompted another motion for a mistrial, except the judge had a bit of a different answer on that. I'll play that for you in a second. First, I'm going to tell you about general equipment rental in Weaverville. 
at the intersection of Merriman Avenue and Reams Creek Road. This is where you need to go to rent all the equipment for your projects, big or small. Okay, so if you're trying to do, you know, like a tiling project, backsplash or something like that, maybe you want to till some area of the yard, put in a garden this spring, uh, you can get those tools at General Equipment Rental. If you're looking to purchase outdoor power equipment, then uh, you're not going to go wrong with a Husqvarna or a Honda. And it just so happens that General Equipment Rental is your official licensed Husqvarna and Honda outdoor power equipment sales and service provider. Okay, they do equipment service and repair too, by the way. So uh, these guys know everything there is to know about Husqvarna and Honda equipment. They also know all about the various deals that the manufacturers offer. And so they can pass some along to you and they can combine them with others. So for example, the Husqvarna uh, V548 or V554 stand-on mower, uh, you can put two different deals together uh, and get about $3,500 worth of savings, but only through the end of April. So uh, head on down to General Equipment Rental in Weaverville uh, or go to their website, generalrents.com. Check out the deals there. Um, and remember to tell them that you heard it here on the show. I appreciate that. Generalrents.com, General Equipment Rental in Weaverville. Think outside your toolbox. All right, so uh, here is the defense attorney asking for another uh, mistrial, or asking again for a mistrial, based on the rantings of Congresswoman Maxine Waters, which you just heard. Your Honor, as the court is aware, and as uh, prior to coming into court this morning for uh, closing arguments, we had an in-chambers discussion about events of this weekend, uh, specifically referencing that an elected official, uh, United States congressperson, was making um, what I interpreted to be, and what I think are reasonably interpreted to be threats against the sanctity of the jury process, um, threatening and intimidating um, a jury, demanding that if there's not a guilty verdict that there would be further um, further, uh, further problems. Your Honor. And um, given the fact that um, this jury has not been sequestered, it has been my position all along throughout the course of this case that this jury should have been sequestered at the, at the outset. The jury has not been continually, uh, has not been continually uh, told to stay away from media, only media about this case. There is a high probability that, that members of this jury have seen these comments, are familiar with these comments, and things that have happened throughout the course of this trial. I mean, it's unfortunate that there was another situation that that occurred during the course of this trial. But obviously, Your Honor, we also, as I mentioned previously too, one of the jurors does live uh, in the city, Brooklyn Center, uh, as I recall. Although I think that is the alternate we just dismissed. I do not believe so. I, believe I thought it was, but go ahead. Um, no, I'd have to go back and double check my notes. So, I mean, I just think that the, the sum total of this trial happening in such a public context, number one, um, number two, while this, all of this, I mean, the media attention is profound. I, I have admittedly stayed away from 99% of it, but that has required me to stay away from all media. Um, I mean, the, the, this case has made... Uh, made its found its way into even fictional television your honor there were uh two i was advised of two television shows during in the course of the past uh, few days that specifically involved references to this particular case and the reactions of the characters in these stories to this particular case um, this jury has has 
despite all best efforts, has been bombarded with information relevant to this case. It is impossible to stay away from it unless you literally shut off your phone or you shut off your TV, you shut off your computer, and no such instructions have been given during the course of this trial. Well, to be fair, the last few times I've advised them, I told them, don't watch the news, pure and simple. Right, but if you can't even watch your favorite Thursday night television program and it comes up, I mean, this, this, is, this is the problem. Right. And why I have felt that this jury should have been sequestered uh, from the very beginning um, to make that clear. And so I had moved um, based on that this again for a mistrial. This the, the idea is, is that it is a public trial. I think the court has accomplished that. But the media attention is so profound. It is such a um, I mean. It is such a modern uh, comparison. I mean, it's such a modern problem to have where literally I walk from this courtroom into the courtroom where I've been permitted to, to stay. During the course of this trial, I've received literally thousands and thousands and thousands of emails, um, so much so that I don't even look at that particular email anymore. So, um, I mean, but... My phone gives me alerts on things that just happened. I mean, you can't avoid it. And it is so per pervasive that it is, I just don't know how this jury, it can really be said to be that they are free from the taint of this. Um, and now that we have US representatives uh, threatening acts of, of, uh, of violence in relation to the specific case, it's, it's mind-boggling to me, Judge. Well, I'll give you that Congresswoman Waters may have given you something on appeal that may result in this whole trial being overturned. I got to tell you, that was a plot twist to 2021 that I did not see coming. Maxine Waters, responsible for Derek Chauvin getting uh, a mistrial. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, before the judge made those comments... Maxine Waters told thegrio.com uh, that, quote, Republicans will jump on any word, any line and try to make it fit their message and their cause for denouncing us and denying us, basically calling us violent. Anytime they see an opportunity to seize on a word, so they do it and they send a message to all the white supremacists, the KKK, the Oath Keepers, the boys, the Proud Boys, uh, and all of that. Uh, uh, how this is a time for Republicans to raise money on Democrats' backs. This is what she said. By the way, she's like 800 years old now, I think, or something. Um, and Nancy Pelosi defended Maxine Waters, says she should not apologize for this. Meanwhile, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican uh, minority leader, uh, is introducing a resolution to censure Democratic Congresswoman Maxine Waters. And I hear that there's some rumblings like, oh, you know, that... Uh, uh, might be some moderate Democrats that are fed up with her and they're going to jump on board this too. Yeah, I'll believe that when I see it. And by the way, there is in stark relief now uh, the glaring hypocrisy that Democrats have for, you know, the standard that, you know, Donald Trump incited a riot by telling people to, you know, fight, 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 and then peacefully demonstrate in front of the Congress. Uh, so that was incitement. But Maxine Waters saying, you know, step up the confrontations uh, during a riot. And uh, that's not incitement. See, so this is the the inconsistent application of the standard. Maxine Waters will suffer no repercussions for this because Democrats don't. They get to incite violence. They're allowed to do that. And I've been warning people on the left for years, you're not going to like it when the right plays by these rules, too. But then the judge was not done. Take a listen. 
I'm aware of the media reports. I'm aware that Congresswoman Waters was talking specifically about this trial and about the unacceptability of uh, anything less than a murder conviction and talk about being confrontational, but you can submit the press articles about that. This goes back to what I've been saying from the beginning. I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch in our function. I think if they want to give their opinions, they should do so in a respectful and in a manner that is consistent with their oath to the Constitution to respect a co-equal branch of government. Their failure to do so, I think, is abhorrent, but I don't think it has prejudiced us with additional uh, material that would prejudice this jury. They have been told not to watch the news. I trust they are following those instructions and that there is not in any way uh, a prejudice to the defendant beyond the articles that we're talking specifically about the facts of this case. A congresswoman's opinion really doesn't matter a whole lot. Anyway, so motion for mistrial is denied. So the judge lets her off the hook. And in fact, she then turns around and tells CNN, quote, the judge says, my words don't matter. And when pressed on the judge stating that her remarks could be grounds for appeal, she says, oh, no, no, they didn't. She insisted she was entirely justified in her call to action, saying the whole civil rights movement is confrontational. See, that's how they that's how they're going to frame this. And Pelosi said the same thing. Now, meanwhile, outside the court. More than 2,000 National Guard members and 1,100 law enforcement officials stood watch over Minneapolis as the city is bracing for potential unrest. You, you think that's potential unrest over the verdict? And not learning anything from Maxine Waters, the mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Fry, said this. Regardless of the outcome of this trial, regardless of the decision made by the jury, there is one true reality which is that George Floyd was killed at the hands of police. Yet another example of why it's great to be a Democrat. No repercussions for anything you say. That's a wrap for the episode. Thanks so much for listening. I appreciate it. Remember, go to thepetecalendarshow.com, click subscribe, get the podcast every single day. Uh, Thanks for listening. We'll talk with you later. Don't break anything while I'm gone.